So 1 John, and we'll start in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, good morning and welcome once again. As you've heard, my name's Gwilym and I help to work amongst the international students here, which is relevant to why I want to start this talk, because I want to begin by telling you about one of our international students. Now, he arrived in London um, a year or two ago, and he came wanting to be keen. And then a few weeks into the year, um, a course mate um, asked him what he thought about sexuality. And he tried to answer as kindly and as lovingly as he could um, that as a Christian, he thought that sex was for one man and one woman in marriage. And the rest of the conversation didn't go very well. Uh, the course mate made it quite clear uh, that this position was unacceptable. In fact, that if he was going to express opinions like that, they had no words for him. They weren't going to talk to him anymore and they stormed off. And he was pretty unsettled by it at the time. Um, in fact, I think he's still quite unsettled. I was talking to him yesterday, and he was saying that he's still a bit scared whenever he sees this course mate um, in a lecture. It is unsettling, isn't it? It is one thing to be told that you're wrong. It's another to be told that you're evil. We better get used to it, though. Um, it is the moment in which we live and the Christian apologist, Francis Spufford, um, he has suggested that this is a new, new moment, uh, that in the ancient world, or whatever people thought of the truth claims of Christianity, it clearly had the moral high ground, but no longer. 
um, as um, on every one of the great social justice causes of the moment. Um, Anti-racism, anti-colonialism, feminism, LGBT rights, environmentalism. On every one of those causes, Orthodox Christianity has, at best, a checkered record. At best. Because the truth is that if you were to ask an activist on any of those causes, they would say that Christianity is the enemy. Richard Dawkins has described a religious upbringing as a form of child abuse. I just think of that. When I teach my children to pray, I'm not just misguided, I'm abusive. And in the current debates over sexuality, the Anglican activist Jane Azan has argued very publicly that what we teach here, some things that I'm going to say this morning, are harmful, evil. To teach people that the right place for sex is in the lifelong union of one man and one woman, as we do, it's not just wrong, it is wicked, it is oppressive. If people were to hear me say something like that and to go away and to harm themselves, maybe even to take their own life, I would have blood on my hands. In fact, there are legislators who have argued successfully in some places that people like us should face prosecution if someone does hear us say things like that and harms themselves. Now, I'm not sure that Francis Spufford is right to think that this is really unprecedented. And Christians have been maligned as evildoers ever since the church began. But he is right that it's a unique sort of challenge. It is one thing to be backwards. It is quite another to be told that you are evil. Well, what would God say into a situation where Christians have to learn to be the bad guys? And we don't have to guess. That's the great thing. Because that is the, exactly the situation that the apostle John was addressing, both, I think, as he wrote his gospel... Um, and also as he wrote this letter. The church that he wrote to in 1 John weren't just left behind, they were maligned. Uh, The implication from the letter seems to be that they were reviled as lawbreakers, apostates, disloyal, evil, and not just by a few false teachers, but by whole networks, whole communities of family and friends. You know, to be a Christian Jew at the time that John was writing, was to face the hostility of a whole culture. Actually, it still is. And of course, it is deeply unsettling. No one really wants to be thought an idiot, and I know that I don't. But do you know what I find even harder? And I find it very hard to be thought an idiot. Do you know what I find even harder? To be told that I am evil. So what would you say to my student friends? And what would you say to a church, whether in the first century or the 21st, that is losing confidence because it doesn't want to be the bad guy? Well, John's answer is one John. And as we saw last week, we're in a section of the book that digs beneath the surface. John wants to unmask those who are speaking against these Christians. And he wants to show that they speak from the world. Um, Actually, he has a double agenda. On on the one hand, he wants to expose those who have left for what they are. On the other hand, he wants to reassure these discouraged Christians 
about what they are. And the very first thing that he has to do in today's passage is to reassure. And what he says is very reassuring. Our first point, Christians are recognizably the children of God. This is the 10 a.m.'s memory verse at the minute. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What a reassurance. Here you have a church family that is unsteady, wobbling, knocked back by the fact that the world doesn't know them. Are we the baddies? And John puts an arm around you and says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God's. And so we are. It's worth doing a bit of unpacking. The reason that we need to be reassured in the first place is that it is not instantly obvious that we are God's children. It will be. Look down to chapter 3 and verse 2. When Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There will come a day when it's instantly obvious who the children of God are. But that's not yet what we are. Again, verse 2, what we will be has not yet appeared. And so, verse 1, the world does not know us. The fact that we are the children of God is not the undeniable, uh, manifestly apparent public fact that it will one day be. But John says, whatever the world says... And no matter how bad they are at seeing it, nevertheless, we are recognizably the children of God. Uh, Certainly, he wants this particular church to know that. We are the children of God. We've been called the children of God, verse 1. We are the children of God, verse 1. Beloved, we are now the children of God. He's not leaving them in any doubt about what he thinks they are. But, But more than that, he wants them to see that it is recognizable. Um, that they bear the marks of what they will one day be, that they're not what they will one day be, but in at least two ways, all Christians, you if you're Christian, we as a church family this morning, show the signs of what we will one day be. Firstly, we believe in the Lord Jesus. Verse 28, we abide in him. Chapter 3 and verse 3, we hope in him. We're waiting for Jesus. And if the children of God are those who are like the child of God, the Lord Jesus, then the first sign now that you're a child of God is that you hope in him. And then secondly, we try to be like Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes in him purifies themselves as he is pure. We're not yet like him. We're not yet pure as he is. And yet, that's the direction that we're striving in. That's what we want. That's what we seek to do. And because those two marks are true of any Christian and any Christian church, we can be confident. We are recognizably the children of God's. It is an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? The theologian J.I. Packer, um, he put it this way. He said that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. 
higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And he's right, isn't he? It's an extraordinary privilege. We are not just creatures of God. We are not just servants of God. We're not even merely friends of God, like Abraham, the great man of God. God calls us his children. He hears our cries. We even call him Abba, Father, my dad. J.I. Packer again, to be forgiven is a great thing, but we are not just forgiven. The traitor is forgiven and brought in for supper and given the family name. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. What is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as their father. It's extraordinary. It is unbelievable love, isn't it? Verse 1, see what manner of love, literally what far country love, love from another country, the kind of love that reaches out to Haran to call Abraham and to found a family, the kind of love that reaches down with both hands from heaven to gather people in, untold love to give us the name and the reality that we are the children of God, and that is what we are. And John wants us to know that if we are Christian, we can be absolutely certain of this. One way you could imagine 1 John chapter 3 is as an episode of um, Oprah or Jeremy Kyle um, or Trisha. Do you know what I'm sort of talking about? One of those kind of contested paternity cases. So you know what I mean? Here you have a father um, and here you have a group who have grown up with him as their father. They're his children and then he disappears on some sort of business trip or something. And then suddenly, a house down the street, um, they start to say, no, we're the real children of that man. Look, we've got photos of him all around our house. We dress like him. We're his children. Don't know what you are, but we're his children. And of course, if you were in a situation like that, you would do what all right-thinking people do, and you would decide to settle it with a sealed envelope DNA test on live television. Um, Actually, I've got the envelope here. (laughs) The Church of Jesus Christ, care of St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. Let's see what it says. I'm not very good at reading these things, but we'll have a go. Um, Child, Christian church, alleged father, the God of Israel. Then there's something about alleles that I don't really understand or know how to say. And then possibility of paternity, 100%. I don't think I've ever seen that on a DNA test. You are the children of God. Just stay where you are. You wouldn't want to shrink back from him when he comes, so don't shrink back now. However they revile you, you are the children of the God who loves you. It is tremendously reassuring. To know that God loves you is always reassuring. A while ago, I was facing a bit, and I need to put this into context, facing a bit of really very mild criticism, very mild. But it was getting to me, and I was discouraged by it. I felt misunderstood and misrepresented. 
And then Jenny, my wife, she looked at me and she did something that she doesn't normally do, but she did this time. She, she looked at me and she said, Gwilym, God loves you. And you know what? It did cast the whole situation in a completely different light. Well, God, your father, loves you. They might call you evil. But whatever the world thinks is really beside the point. God calls you his sons. See what far country love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That is half of the answer that John gives to these discouraged and reviled Christians. But it's only half. And he doesn't just name Christians rightly. He also names those who have departed as well. Christians are recognizably the children of God's and the departed are recognizably the children of the devil. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God's and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not work righteousness is not of God's, nor is the one who does not love his brother. At this point, you might think, now hang on, hang on. Isn't this just trading insults? You're apostate. No, you're apostate. You're evil. No, you're evil. And you might think that's not very attractive. It's beneath a moral grown-up to respond that way. Well, if you're tempted to think that as you read 1 John, you need to realize that John is both a better and a more realistic theologian than you. Apostle of love, he may be, but he also understands that however inappropriate it might be to label Christians evil, however wicked it might be to call Christ a scoundrel, it is not wrong to think that evil and wickedness and satanic rebellion are alive in the world. You see, on this much, the departed are right. Ever since the opening chapters of Genesis, the devil has had his children, not, literally, not literal spawn, but those who follow his leads, who make him their father. It's just that the boot is on the other foot. The, appointed, the departed are pointing in the wrong direction, or they should be looking in the mirror. Let me read the paragraph again. Verse four. Everyone who works sin also works lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever works righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever works sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God works sin, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, these are the, some of the hardest verses in the New Testament, and Jenny suggests it might be helpful to say that I'm not going to crack everything about them this morning. There'll still be questions, and you're welcome to come and ask them. But I want you to see that they're not hard, really, because the point that they are making is hard to understand, at least not on the face of it. John sets out a very simple binary, 
And my friend Dan Strange, he calls this the antithesis. And so on the one side is sin. That is all wrongdoing in thoughts and words and deeds. And then lawlessness. Lawlessness doesn't mean law-breaking, not in the first instance. It means casting off all law, being anti-law and casting off all authority. And then the devil, who inspired that sort of lawless rebellion in the beginning. And then on the other side, you have the seed. You have the son of God, Jesus, who came to destroy the works of the devil. And you have righteousness, this beautiful Old Testament word for goodness, for a world that is right, as it should be. It is an antithesis because there is no overlap. Jesus, righteousness, goodness, the seeds, they are completely, inseparably locked together. The devil and sin and lawlessness, again, completely, inseparably locked together. Two families, the children of God and the children of the devil. Two heroes, the son of God and the serpent whose head he came to crush. Two modes of living, sin and righteousness. And I think John's point is really very straightforward. Do you want to find the children of the devil? Well, just look for those who sin. Or just look for those who stand against Jesus. Do you want to find the children of God? Just look for those who do not sin, who cannot sin. Just look for those who work righteousness. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not work righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you know, John's point is not unclear. It's just impossible, isn't it? Is he really saying that anyone who ever sins cannot be born of God? What does that make us? What does that make you? Some Christians have read this paragraph and concluded that it is saying that true Christians are those who are at least functionally perfect and then try to prove that they meet that standard. Um, Actually, the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once encountered a Christian teacher who had said that um, he had reached a state of sinless perfection where he no longer struggled with sin. And Spurgeon didn't challenge him on the spot. He waited until the next morning. um, And whilst this guy was having breakfast, he crept up behind him um, with a big jug of milk And he emptied the jug of milk over this guy's head and watched as this perfect man gushed out all of the anger and rage and hostility you'd expect a perfect man to gush out. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon had made his point in a rather heroic way. Actually, he'd made John's point, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Whatever this paragraph means, it cannot mean that there's a group of perfect Christians out there, not if the rest of the letter is true. But what does it mean? Others have tried to soften it. Actually, I think that is what the ESV translation that we're using has tried to do with that little phrase, make a practice of sin, as though sinning and making a practice of sin are two different things. You know, a bit of sin is okay. Just don't do too much of it. Don't make a practice of it. And so you go to the GP 
and you have to fill out that form about how much alcohol you drink in a week, and you put down 10 to 12 units. You know, I, I, I drink, but I wouldn't say that I'm a drinker. I sin, but I wouldn't say that I'm a sinner. But that is not what John says. Actually, the ESD is wrong here. He is much more stark. It is an absolute binary. All working of sin is lawlessness. All lawlessness is of the devil. All who are born of him work righteousness, only righteousness. There is a great big line, a fixed chasm between the two. There is no overlap, no gray area, no no man's land, no fuzzy middle. At the end of the film, Schindler's List, there's a beautiful quote from the Talmud. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. It's a lovely thought. I'm not sure it's true. In fact, I think it probably isn't. I think John might rather put it the other way around. Whoever commits one sin overthrows the world entire. If you struggle with internet pornography, you might need to see this, actually. There is no acceptable level of lust. It all comes from hell. Let's say you struggle with anger. There is no acceptable amount of unrighteous anger with your children. There is no acceptable level of pride. There is no acceptable level of gossip. There is no acceptable level of envy. A little bit of sin is never harmless. It is the echo of the roar of the prowling lion. It reeks of sulfur. It comes from hell. We mustn't dilute John. It makes a travesty of what he's saying. We mustn't dilute John here because his aim is to unmask. That's why these verses are here. Here is a group of teachers representing an entire culture, and they have named the children of God as unjust, immoral, unrighteous, and apostate. And John is saying to these teachers, but which side of the antithesis are you actually on? You are pointing the finger, but what about you? Let's hold up a mirror. I mean, number one, firstly, you are opposed to Jesus Christ. Uh, Make no mistake, ever since Genesis 3, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, has been God's great strategy to overthrow the devil and his works. If you set yourself against the Son of God, you cannot be on the side of goodness. Anyone who sets themselves against God's seed chooses to side with sin and lawlessness and the snake. Do you know it's still true? No matter how loudly a culture tells us that they are ethical and just and good, no matter how confident they are that we are intolerant and oppressive, they have chosen the one thing that guarantees that they cannot bring justice in the world. There is no path to justice or to goodness that opposes Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, Christians get things wrong. We make a mess of all sorts of things. But those who reject Jesus have to make a mess. They're opposing God's solution 
to a world messed up by sin and lawlessness. And so John holds up the mirror, this antithesis, and says, stop pointing the finger, look in the mirror. How can you be on the side of goodness if you oppose Jesus Christ? But it's not just about their opposition to Jesus Christ. It's also about the fact that they are excusing sin. That's the second reason this antithesis, this mirror works as John holds it up. I think John really does think that these teachers are working, excusing sin in the world. Not just the meta-sin of rejecting Jesus, but more than that. By focusing on a few commandments, they have been free to disregard the ones that they don't think matter. As long as you're circumcised, as long as you're kosher, it doesn't really matter if you're actually bringing goodness in the wider world. But the antithesis is so exposing. If you are excusing any sin, if you are playing down any sin, you are on the side of lawless rebellion. Again, it's very contemporary, isn't it? There are any number of things that you could get away with today. Unkindness, dishonesty, anger, faithlessness, sloth, that's kind of laziness in doing goods, exclusivism, selfishness. If only you keep the great commandments. Vote for the right party, have the correct opinions, and put the right things on Instagram. As long as you are ethical, you don't need to be good. It comes closer to home. In the name of love and the good news of the gospel, the leadership of the Church of England is currently trying to work out whether to start blessing what God has called sin. Bishops who have vowed to teach us God's word have instead invited us to let um, them know that the Bible doesn't say what they think it says. And one set of priorities, good priorities, inclusion, tolerance, accessibility, and a particular understanding of compassion have been used to sweep aside behavior that the Bible identifies from beginning to end, right the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation, as unrighteousness, part of a world not good. The Bible is clear. All sexual activity, whether virtual or physical, outside the lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage, and all personal identification that runs counter to our God-given personhood as male and female, is unrighteousness, part of the chaos unleashed on the world by that first moment of rebellion against God. So what are we doing when we say that it's okay in the name of living in love and faith? John skewers it. The antithesis skewers it. This is just not the way that it works. You cannot play commandments off against an, um, each other. You can't use obedience to one or two imperatives to justify disregarding a bunch of others. And anyone who sets out to do that, whether it's out there or in here, anyone who sets out to do that to to justify disobeying some things in the name of obeying some others, is working sin in the world, is choosing a side. 
And they might label us as intolerant and hateful and oppressive, and that hurts, and we shouldn't be those things. But you cannot work genuine righteousness in the world if you deliberately find a way to excuse what God calls sin. The bishops in the Church of England are on dangerous territory, and we should pray that they see sense. Or the departed in 1 John and their culture were pointing the finger, and so John holds up a mirror, this antithesis. He says, you oppose Jesus, you excuse sins, both of those things, and by this it is evident who are the children of the devil. We mustn't play down the sharpness of this antithesis because it is precisely the starkness of the antithesis that unmasks them. But what about us? I mean, what does it do to us? We sin. Does it expose us? It does, actually. And it leaves us with a choice. One option is to try to play down your sin, to excuse it, to say that it wasn't that bad, to rebrand it. And the truth is that that is a strong temptation for us. A little anger, a little lust, a little envy, they're not that bad. I wonder whether you have ever seen someone completely locked in to showing that they're without sin at all costs. It is so destructive. It's so destructive. But do you know, if you do that, if you consistently do that, if you consistently play down or excuse your sin, you're choosing the devil's side. You see, the sins that you excuse and the sins that you play down are the ones that you have found a reason to work on the earth. And all sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness overthrows the world entire. One option is that you try to play down or to excuse your sin. The other is that you confess your sin. That is what sinners who choose the side of the Lord Jesus do. They confess their sin. That little lie, that little anger, that great pride... It does matter. It is horrific. To choose the side of Jesus is to say, I know, I am so sorry. I want to do good. Please forgive me. And you know what? Because of the love from a far, far country, when we do that, he does forgive us. And he doesn't just forgive us, He brings us in for supper, and he calls us by the family name. And so that's what we're going to do now. Perhaps you could take your service sheet, and we'll stand, and we're going to confess our sins together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed, in the evil we have done and in the good we have not done. 
through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate faults. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen.